message title is, is purpose, but really it's part of the larger theme that we've been begun to explore. This idea of Moses and a new beginning, change, transitions, adaptability, trusting God. If you recall, those of us who were here in the fall, we talked a lot about the life of Moses, but we focused on the call of Moses, the early part of Moses' life. And we really approached it from the perspective of how God helped Moses to get past some of his wounds, how God really encouraged him to um, have faith for moving forward in his life because it had had some, a, a, a bad stretch and he, it caused him in turn to be resistant to being able to move forward with some of the things that God had for him and that we're going to bless people. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time there sort of getting past our past. But now we come to this series, and we're going to approach it from a slightly different way now. The month of January, there are things that I'm going to touch back on that we've been interacting with. But even, and then in, as we move forward, we'll, we'll pick back up with the narrative that's captured in the book of Exodus and sort of move with the people as they go out of Egypt to cross through the Red Sea into the wilderness. There's, there's a lot of lessons, a lot of great things to glean out of that. But right now, I want us to be thinking about Moses, but shifting the way in which we approach some of the things we've looked at. I'd like us to think about it from the standpoint of how do we trust God with the transition places in our lives, the change places, the opportunity places this new year? What are the lessons for us? What are things we might want to consider? This is how I'd like to approach this. So rather than actually going into the book of Exodus itself, which we'll return to in a few weeks, I want us to look at a piece of scripture from the book of Acts. It's the seventh chapter. It has to do with something that was shared by a man named Stephen as he was recounting the history of Israel. When he was doing it, there's a part of his message that focused on the life of Moses. We touched on that last week. I want to pick back up here, read through it, then we'll move forward. It says in Acts 7, verses 23 to 29, it says, Now when he, when he was 40 years old, now that's Moses. Moses turned 40, and 40 is a very critical time in a person's life frequently, a lot of times around that period is when we start looking at some things differently. So it was actually a, a, a hinge point for Moses. It becomes the second transition point in his life, the great transition point. Uh, the first one had to do with his amazing, uh, how would you say, involvement in an incident that he had no say in at all. We talked about that last week, how his parents, by faith, took a risk and defied the decree of Pharaoh to have their son killed and instead put him into an ark in the Nile, hoping that somehow, possibly, maybe, God could work a miracle out of just their little bit of faith. And it did happen that Moses was spared, saved, adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters, as, uh, raised as a son, a prince in Egypt. Uh, that was part of his um, a miracle that... It obviously was a transition that he had no say in. But this next transition was in many ways a result of something that Moses did. There was a tipping point in the life of Moses. It's covered here in Acts 7. Let's read it. It says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt at this time. And he had come to a point in his life where their plight as a persecuted enslaved people had become too much for him to ignore. And there's probably, he had probably had conversations with this, with perhaps his peers, his friends, others who um, counseled him, look, you know, you, 
that's not your business. Don't you see God, God's given you a unique role to play? Um, why would you want to throw all this away? You, you've been given an opportunity that, you're, that nobody else has. I mean, don't get mixed up with, with the, the Hebrew people. You're an Egyptian here. And uh, there would have been a lot of pressure on Moses to, to not sacrifice everything he had. And yet there was a point where it became too much. He could not live with his conscience, nor the voice of God that seemed to be speaking to him. And every time he saw his people suffering, he was reminded in some way of the, the, um, the inability on his part to truly enjoy what he had. And so on one occasion, we're told he, he acted out. And this is what it says. It says, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Stephen, again, talking to an audience that would have been familiar with the story, says, do you remember the moment where Moses was witnessing one of the Hebrew slaves being beaten? And in his rage, he, he struck the Egyptian and, and, and fought him and ultimately killed him. That's what he's referring to. He struck down the Egyptian. It says, and, when he, and he had supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. In other words, that they would have recognized that the reason he had been given the place that he had been given in life was that somehow it was connected to their blessing, that he was in some way to be their deliverer. He says, and he assumed that they would immediately recognize that God had placed it in his heart, and that's why things had happened as they had. But it says that he, they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them when they were having this disagreement, saying, men, you're brothers. Why are you treating one another this way? Why are you fighting with one another? And then he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away and said, hey, who made you our judge? Who made you a ruler over us? Do you want to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when it, Moses realized that his, what had happened, which he had thought was done in secret, was known, he became afraid. And it, he, Stephen says, and he, and he ran for his life like a fugitive. And he, he left Egypt in haste, and he made his way to the land of Midian. And it was there that, Steve, that Stephen says, and he had two sons. And that's, that's a very broad summary. Again, Exodus fills it with more detail, but we get the idea. When, when we're told in the book of Exodus that when he flees to Midian, that the first place he stops after he's been running for his life is by a well. And at this well, an incident occurs that alters the course of the next four decades of his life, and really, it, it defines it. He's sitting there exhausted. His whole world has fallen apart. He's been running for his life. He's tired. He's weary. He's thirsty. He's just got, he's been probably drinking the water. He's sitting there. He's resting, and he's sort of watching the activity that's happening around the well, and one of the things he notices, and again, it's in, it's in Exodus 2, what happens is there are seven women. We know, the Bible says they were seven sisters, uh, who were the daughters of a man named Jethro, also known as Ruel. And they were um, shepherd, shepherding a flock for their father. And one of the things, that, and Moses would have witnessed this, and as he was watching them, uh, he also noted that while they were trying to water their flock, which sort of you would stand in line to do it, it would take some time and effort, that while they were waiting in line and they had arrived and were about to do it, they, the, another group of male shepherds came and basically pushed them away and, and bullied them out of there and basically cut them and, and sent them to the back of the line. And Moses saw that. In fact, it is implied afterwards with the conversation that they have with their father that, who asked them, how, why are you back home so soon? 
that this would have been a common practice. They had a time at just right to get there in time before they were taken advantage of and pushed aside. And it says that but when Moses saw what was happening, that he responded uh, to such a degree that he, he immediately decided to defend them. And it says that in a con- moment of conflict with the male shepherds, he, he insisted that they, the daughters, the sh- that the daughters of Jethro had their place, and it was their turn, and they watered their flock. And not only that, he helped, it says, in, a, in something that would have been quite an expensive energy, he helped, helped them with the watering of that flock. And that's what we were, we were told in the picture we're given. And I was reading a book not, not too long ago by a writer named Reggie McNeil. And in his book, which is called A Work of Heart, not work of art, a work of heart, one of the chapters is devoted to Moses. And he's talking about Moses. And he said this, he says, speaking about this incident, he says, his bravery and kindness landed him a dinner invitation. And that dinner invitation led him to a wife and a job. <laughs> all in all, it turned out to be a quite productive afternoon. <laughs> and, and, you know, it would, be, it would be a day that would shape the next 40 years of his life. Now, McNeil goes on to say this. He says, essentially, just from looking at what happens with Moses as he's portrayed in the scriptures, we can draw, there's, there's certain themes that characterize his early period of his life. And they're captured in some of the things we just referred to. And so I just want to quickly note those themes, and then we'll overlay them into where we're going to go. But one of the themes that clearly emerges, that we see it, uh, it happens more than once, is that Moses um, has a, a strong sense of right and wrong. Uh, it's part of what compelled him to act. I mean, the, he perceived, the, it was the perceived injustice of what was happening that compelled him frequently to respond to things. In a lot of, first time he reacted to something. And, and, and again, that was just part of his nature. I mean, what, but what, think about it. Whether it was the Hebrew slave who was being beaten or the daughters of Ruel who were being bullied, uh, for Moses, it was wrong that one of his, his people, a, a slave, would be treated so unfairly, beaten mercilessly. For Moses, it was wrong that the, the, the daughters of Ruel would, who have, after having their place by the well, would all of a sudden, just because they were women, be pushed to the back of the line. It bothered him. It was wrong. So he had this sense, and it, show, it shows up a lot, his sense of right and wrong, a sense of justice. Secondly, it's closely connected to it. Another theme that emerges is that Moses has a sensitivity to the needs, and again, of the weak and the sort of unempowered or the underprivileged. It was hardly, by the way, in his day, you didn't get awards or notoriety for being attuned to the, the, the weak, the unempowered, and the underprivileged. That didn't happen. Uh, it was the way things were. Things were set. People didn't move up and down the social ladder. I mean, they didn't move up. You kind of were where you were born. And if your unfortunate plight placed you in a place, then that's the way it was. People understood it and didn't, deal, didn't seek to change it. Moses kind of stands out in some ways because he is particularly sensitive to things. Um, he, he didn't, listen, he didn't need to defend the slave who was being beaten without sounding callous. Slaves were beaten all the time. And I can imagine one of Moses' friends saying, why are you letting that stuff bother you, man? Come on. It's not your, it's not your issue. Don't give up. Do you know what you're going to lose? You get involved in this stuff? Moses, do you understand? You're risking here? It would have been so much easier for him to be uninvolved. And then think about it, sitting by the well, exhausted, um, 
after having run for his own life, he's there. He could have easily justified just staying out of the fight. I mean, come on. I mean, he, after all, I'm, I'm, I'm a stranger in this land. I'm a foreigner. It's not my fight. It's not my deal. It's not my business. He's just kind of watching there, and I can see him watching and going, you know, maybe lesser men would have even kind of laughed at it. So he's how that works. You know, just watched as they were sort of pushed aside. But it bothered him. You know, I thought about this. I thought about how sometimes we find ourselves in situations. We say, oh, well, he just did that. But how many times have we been placed in situations where we see something happening and we start going back and forth in ourselves saying, should I do something? Should I not do something? Should I say something? It's not my fight. It's not my issue. Do I want the conflict? I don't want to get involved. This could be dangerous. Should I do anything? I mean, hopefully it'll work itself out. I'm not, this is not my place. You know, all those thoughts. I can imagine going through Moses' mind, you know? I mean, it would have been very easy to justify passivity. It's just something that, but, and yet he acts, and that's the third theme that emerges. Moses is someone who doesn't just sympathize. Early in his life, he is revealed as someone who has a capacity and a tendency uh, to act and get involved. And so he, he's not just a sympathizer. He does things. He, he doesn't just say, oh, I feel bad for those people. Or that's a bad situation right there. I, you know, maybe I, I, it's not my responsibility. And who would have faulted him? I don't know how things work. Maybe this is how it always works here. But he, he not only was bothered, but he is pictured as someone who, who is willing to risk his own well-being to intervene in a situation that really was not his business. And so it's an emerging part of who he is. And sometimes, early on, that got him into trouble. We could argue that he reacted improperly when he slew the Egyptian. But we could also say that he acted perfectly when he intervened for the, the, the daughters of Ruel. It, the point being, Moses was a person who acted. He didn't just think about it. He did things. Now, Keep that in mind. Let's, let's translate that over. Let's flip it over. Let's use it as a, a kind of diving board for thinking about some keys for purposeful living as we move into this new year. Because I'd like to, in the weeks ahead, talk about practical keys for us moving into our new year. And how can we implement a growth plan for our lives with God? Using sort of the themes of Moses' life, I'd like to work off of them and make some suggestions about, for us. Firstly, let me suggest that this, should be, this is a great time to think about what it means to reground ourselves in our governing values. So and specifically, I'm talking about the Bible, the scriptures, God's word. I'm talking about the, 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 the blessing of engaging God's word freshly. Now, some of us have never actually read the Bible in a definitive, consistent fashion. And even though we grew up exposed to certain things about God, we've actually never investigated for ourselves and actually read it. And one of the things we're trying to suggest here is even if you don't necessarily have to study and have everything answered and everything put into context, there is actually a value in just reading it through. And so one of the ideas of just getting a good reading Bible and making our way through to enlarge our capacity, some of us, it'll be a refreshing season of connecting with God's word in a very distinct fashion. And so uh, this idea of reconnecting with our governing, governing values, what do I mean by that? Here, okay, remember we said Moses had a very strongly defined sense of right and wrong? Well, all of us have to ultimately decide what creed will inform our way. 
Now, Jesus was very clear about how we are to decide. He's, first off, Jesus presupposes there is right and wrong, as, as the scriptures do. But how do we know what right and wrong is? How do we know? Is, there any, is it arbitrary? Is it relative? Jesus said, listen, he talked about the power of God's word, and he talked about it as a way of living, like a map, a, a compass to find our way. The Bible in the Old Testament is filled with examples of, of how the word of God, the words of God, can lead us in our way. Jesus told his disciples, he said, listen, you search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. They testify of me. He said, listen, we do not live by bread alone, by simply getting through and working through life and existing. No, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said on, on certain occasions, he said, listen to my words. Listen, my words will be to you, spirit and life. Jesus said on another occasion, let me tell you something about life. He said, life, if, if you will, he says, if you will hear and do my words, I will liken you unto that person who built his house on a rock. And when the storms of life hit, and they will, and they will, when they hit, when the winds begin to blow fiercely and the skies darken, and it begins to rumble with rage, and the waters fall and rise, and the floods come. Jesus said, if you have built your house on the rock, it will stand. It will stand. He says, it is the person who hears and does, hears and does these sayings of mine. And Jesus would often talk about levels of listening. And he would, that's why he, if you read the Gospels, Jesus will periodically throw a phrase on the back end of certain teachings, and he'll say something like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. What he's saying is not all of you are hearing the same. Hear in such a way that it causes something to move in your life. There is a way of hearing that, hmm, that's interesting, and there's a way of hearing that hears to, to digest it into my being so that it becomes something that comes into me. And, there's, and Jesus talked about that a lot. There's a, uh, in Psalm one, of course, you think about how the Psalms, which is just, they're, they're amazing. They're prayers, they're songs. Uh, it, Psalm 1 starts, the whole movement of the Psalms begins with, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And in that word, in that law, he meditates day and night. And you know what? If you do that, he says, you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. It will bring forth its fruit in its season, and its leaf also will not wither. There will be something of lasting, of life, of a spring of life. Think about the picture, the imagery that we're being given. You will be, if you will meditate on these words, you will be like a tree planted by, by a river of water. It will bring forth fruit, and other people will live out of that in the shade of that, of, that, of that tree and the life of that tree. The leaf also will not wither. There's something about it. It's talking about the power of interfacing God's word with our daily life. Psalm 119, and I put this in the handout, a portion of it. Psalm 119 is, is, may be the most amazing chapter in the entire Older Testament. It certainly has to qualify as one of the most outstanding chapters in all the Bible. It, it is the longest uh, chapter in all the scriptures. Um, 178 verses make it up. Um, by the way, it's not just what it appears. Because out of the, all those 178 verses, I think and I, if, that only three of them don't involve some form of reference to God's word. There are synonymous words used throughout You'll see it. In fact, just by looking at the passage of portion of scripture right there, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
um, different words are used to refer to God's word. Look what it says here. You can just see it, even just walking down this short little passage. It says, by taking heed, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according, there it is, your word. With my whole heart I have saw you, oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11, your word have I hidden. Verse 12, teach me your statutes. Um, with my lips I have declared, your judgments, right? The judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of, te- of your testimonies. Uh, I will meditate on your precepts. I will delight myself in your statutes, in your words. See, it, everything is filled with references to God's words. And you know what else? One of the things about this 119th Psalm, it's actually an acrostic. It's divided up. The Hebrew language has 22, uh, the alphabet has 22, there are 22 uh, pieces of the Hebrew alphabet. In, in, if you look at the way that the, the text is set, it's divided into 22 stanzas. Each one of those stanzas represents a letter. Each of the verses of the eight verses that are underneath the stanza start with that letter. And although it was designed to be both a testimony, a collection of David's sayings, and a memory device that could be utilized, all of it is filled with references to the power of God's word alive in our life. Look what it says here. Look what, just as a piece of it, look what David says. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? A young man, a young woman, how can anyone really walk in a clean way? What is our way? Our way is the way we live our life, the way that we go, the choices we make, the decisions we make, our path, how we live. How do we keep our way clean in God? How do we do this? He says, by taking heed. Again, heed, taking heed. In other words, not just, not just knowing, it's applying. It's not just uh, listening, it's, it's implementing. It, it, the idea of heeding it is, is more than just a passive appreciation. I like it, it's a good thing. It has to do with implementing it into our life. Look what he goes on to say. David says, with my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, Lord, I poured my honest heart into this. Do not let me wander from your commands. What is it, wander? How easy it is to wander off course in life. How easy it is to wander in things that entrap us, that that hurt us, that damage us, that damage our walk with God, that that ensnare us, that trap us. Think about it. When Jesus gives his prayer, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus says, let me show you, let me give you a, a kind of prayer to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It really was given for the disciples. You could call it the disciples' prayer. He says part of that prayer is what? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Don't let me wander off course, Lord. Keep me in the right path. This is what David is saying. He says, your word have I hidden, hidden like, a, like choice treasure in my heart. And notice he says, my heart. He says, and that means it's not just rote. It's not just cold. It's not just clinical. It's not just like a dead thing that we appreciate, a religious exercise uh, to just sort of have as a part of our life. He's saying, no, this is a heart thing. Your word have I hidden in my heart. It's part of who I am. When we talk about the heart, we're talking about love. We're talking about something. He's saying that your word is beautiful to me. I love it. It's life to me. It is your word I've hidden. I've given a special place in my heart for your word that I might not sin against you, Lord. Blessed are you. And he says, blessed are you, O Lord. I bless you. And may you bless me. Teach me. your sta- Oh, blessed one, bless me by teaching me how to follow you. Think about it. He goes on to say, with my lips I have declared the judgments of your mouth. In other words, he says, look, Lord, I bless you. Teach me your ways. And then he says, and I will in turn declare. Now, I think most of us understand. We increase the likelihood of learning what we believe when we tell it to someone else or share it with someone else. 
the very act of teaching something, the best way to learn is to teach something. It drives it into us, like driving a nail into a, like taking that nail and it driving it into the wood. Uh, it, it's something about sharing out of our being what we are learning and reading. And that's the value of interacting with one another and praying with one another and sharing our heart. David says, look, bless me, teach me. I will in turn teach others, Lord. I will, I will let it flow out of me. What we speak forth is enhanced. What we share, what we talk about, the words of our mouth, that the words of my mouth, David said, the words that I speak, the meditation of my heart, Lord, I pray, would they be acceptable to you? One of the signs of God changing our lives is it affects our speech patterns. And I'm not talking about holier self-righteousness, or I'm, I'm not talking, but I am saying this. I have witnessed what happens when people genuinely engage the Lord. And what before used to be commonplace cursing and dis- d- diminishing is begins to get changed and altered. And the words that come out of my mouth, Lord, let those words be acceptable in thy sight, O God. All of a sudden, our way of, even, our way of living life begins to be changed. And it's not about being better than people. It's about growing in love with God and letting his ways fill our lives. So the very words we speak begin to reflect what it is we long to be. Because there is power in the spoken word. And I am reminded and remind people I care for that the words that we speak create things. When God created this world in its very beginning, whatever that was, and however it came, he didn't think it into existence. In Genesis it says he spoke it into existence. The power of the spoken word. David says, your words I will declare. I will declare, I will take them in, and I will share them. I will speak of them. They will be on my lips. Notice what he goes on to say. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all the riches. And he was a man of wealth. He says, but your word to me is more than those things. He says, it brings me joy. I will meditate on your precepts. What is it to meditate, to reflect, to consider, to mull over, to think long thoughts around them? There are times when we move through the scriptures rapidly and and just let, let it flow quickly through us. And there are times where we need to pause and have time to mull over them and think about them, study them, engage them in a different way. Both are legitimate ways. We, we, we need to, David says, we need to, I meditate, I think about, I think about how your word is to affect the decisions I make. I welcome your word into my life. And then he says in verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes and I will not forget your word. In the word delight there, I was reading in the original translation, you could almost, it, almost delight is almost an underplay because the word that, in the, Hebrew, the literal translation is, I will jump for joy over your word. That's how much it means to me. And I keep thinking about the times when I've, when I've jumped for joy. You know, you sometimes I'm at a game or something, I'll just go, yeah, you know, I'm really happy about it. So I'm high-fiving people I've never met nor will ever see again, right? We're all buddies. And the thing about it is, in those moments of just great joy, uh, you know, there's something about, think about the things that bring us joy. David is saying, that's what your word is to me, a joy to my life. <sighs> may this be a period of our lives where we, we seek God through his word, and may his spirit help bring it to life. Secondly, and I, I took a lot of time here, so secondly, another thing to think about is this idea of being sensitive, right, and not being selfish, um, let us determine to live less selfishly and more sensitively. Why do I bring it up? Because Moses cared for the victim and the oppressed. 
fact, later on in his word, he, God would make it very clear that one of the distinctives of his people were to be the way in which they cared for the oppressed and the forsaken and the forgotten. And it has affected even our Western culture. And, and Jesus was a friend of sinners. And he, he didn't excuse things, but he didn't shame people either. He was filled with grace and truth. It wasn't a relativistic, any way will do approach, but it was a way of graciousness that called people upwards. In fact, sometimes his most stunning and stinging indictments were reserved for the people who were so hard that they, they didn't allow for people's weaknesses and didn't see anybody having the ability to move forward. But Jesus constantly called people up, and he had a real heart for the oppressed. And maybe part of what has happened to me over the past few years has been I've been really impacted by my oldest daughter in, 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 in just her love for the underprivileged and the underserved. And it has reminded me of how important at times it is to just remember that part of what made, makes God pleased is that we care sometimes for people and give in a way with no sense of getting anything back. And perhaps, and all of us will have to interpret this through our own lens, but maybe this year will also be a year that we also are led to help people who may not give us anything back just because we do this in the Lord's name. Thirdly, finally, one of the other things that we can think about is this, that just as Moses was led to act, maybe some of us need to determine to engage life with a similar passion despite past or present disappointments that may be affecting us. The reason I bring this up is because Moses, listen, he, he did not allow his disappointment and his rejection to make him cynical and apathetic. Well, okay, what am I trying to think about? It. He gets there, his world's falling apart. He gets rejected. He's been on the run. He, he doesn't have to do anything, but yet he feels compelled to help the daughters of Jethro. Even though he had experienced his own stinging rejection he, by his own brethren, he determines not to allow that to define him and still is able to bless. And I'm going to suggest that that is a great reminder for all of us not to allow the disappointments or the, the defeats or the wounds of life at even the hands of people who we love to define us. And I'm not saying there's not a time to grieve things. There's not a time to mourn. There's not a time to even to repent sometimes when we're our own worst enemy. I get all of that. But there's a time also to move forward, to move on, and to stay open and not closed up. Moses shows us in so many ways that he would not become a cynical man. And that temptation is always there because, you know, we'll always want, there's always going to be a part of us that wants to give up and quit and be angry, uh, embittered, uh, blame uh, other people. And we'll always have opportunities to do that. We can live with a cloud. That's what we choose. But the way of the Lord is not to dwell on those things, but to move forward. And it has to do with trusting God with our future. It has to do with choosing to live in a more optimistic way that is open, that is open, not confined, not defined by the disappointment, but open to what God can do, may do, could do, staying in a good place, not, not allowing the, the circumstances to sort of uh, define the way in which we attitudinally approach life. Choosing to walk with God, to focus more on being a problem solver than on the problem itself. To say, Lord, you are the God of new beginning. You are the God of Genesis. You are the God of new creation. 
Lord, help me to not be so bound up in negativity, anger, that it closes off my ability to think creatively, to look for solutions, to find other people, to have win-win scenarios, to synergistically connect in ways that allows you to do things in my life, to stay in a good place, not a bitter place, to be able to sometimes say, Lord, maybe you, maybe you have a whole new thing you want to do, and here I am upset about what I can't have anymore, and you've got a whole new thing you're trying to open up, but I can't see it because I'm locked up. And God might say, you know what, break out of the box or give us a new pen to color a different color inside the box. Whatever God wants to do, may we be open to it. May this be your openness, sensitivity, and may our love for God's word expand and grow. Lord, as we are, uh, we are here at this time, in this house, in this place, as we are on this first portion of our journey into this new year, I pray that there would come an expansiveness that would move into our lives. I pray that your word would come alive to us in fresh and new ways. I pray that you would give us the gift of a hunger, a spiritual hunger, because you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right. They will be filled. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the gift of a hunger inside of our soul. I pray that as we move towards this closing time, as we think about what it means to live a life as a song, to give our life back to you, Lord, to say, Lord, keep working in our lives. Keep using us to be that tree planted by the water, Lord, that brings forth its fruit in its season. And sometimes, Lord, that season may not be the season that immediately shows up. It might be a season to plant things or a season where things are germinating or a th season where something's under the ground. But, Lord, it's being watered. It's being cultivated for an appointed time. Help us to not grow impatient, angry, frustrated. Help us to stay open, to retain creativity, to be a grateful person. Um, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in these closing minutes. Bless our time of giving as many of us honor you in our tithes and our offerings and bless this song that we close with. May it be a fitting closure, a life song that we share together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen. Amen.